0: Professor, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Now, over a decade ago, you were cited in a Forbes article called It's Time to Declare Peace in the War on Drugs. By way of background, can you just uh, give some history as to what is the war on drugs?
1: Well, it's a name that was given to a phenomenon, of course, that has been ongoing for quite a while since the late 60s and throughout the 70s, whereby drug use, drug possession, drug sale and distribution were subjected not only to criminal penalties, but to pretty severe criminal penalties. A lot of enforcement, a lot of people went to jail and prison, others were arrested and suffered quite a bit of harm. And so it was a policy that really helped drive the criminal justice system and did a lot of damage to a lot of people who were doing nothing more dangerous than using a drug.
0: What were the purpose behind it? Was it entirely to serve justice? Was there some political purpose, some financial purpose?
1: It's never clear when legislation is passed exactly what the point is. And so if you look at the speeches or proclamations of politicians who were behind this, or pundits or commentators, they often said pretty cursory things like, we want to eliminate the evil of drugs. So I think there were really quite a few different purposes, but I tend to think of it as uh, the, the purposes were more benign than some critics to the War on Drugs like myself tend to think. I, I tend to believe it was an attempt just to help insulate Americans from uh, what they believed to be the pernicious effects of drugs. Drug use was mushrooming in the, in the United States. More and more people were using drugs and people who were anti-drug saw this as a very disturbing trend and they wanted to protect the youth of America from going down that rabbit hole. That was the primary motivation, I think. Others disagree, and again, there's no canonical source of what the motivation was.
0: Now, you've written extensively on decriminalization. Why take that approach, and what was your thinking going into uh, that area of work?
1: I specialize in the philosophy of criminal law, And that is another phrase that I take to be synonymous with criminal theory, the principles that govern the use of the criminal law, and in particular, the principles that govern criminalization, and what kind of conditions have to be satisfied before the state is justified in enacting a criminal offense and enforcing it against people who run afoul of it. And so... I thought about those conditions in contexts not directly related to drugs, and then their application to drug contexts indicated to me that there was very little reason that would pass as a as a legitimate justification for punishing people who use drugs. Of course, people disagree about all these things; these are philosophical issues about which reasonable minds disagree, and when I first came to some of these positions, I was thought to be, people said, oh, you're brave or you're radical. A lot of these positions now have become, I think, much more mainstream than they were at the time. And so I take that to be a good thing. it's better to have uh, many people on your side than be going against the grain.
0: What have been the practical effects of the war on drugs?
1: Well, the practical effects were many and so it's hard to know where to start of course the most severe harms were experienced by drug users themselves who got caught up in the web of criminal justice hundreds of thousands of people really millions of people were arrested hundreds of thousands probably millions were punished and some were punished pretty severely. And so that is an awful thing to do to people, uh, especially when you consider the collateral consequences of a drug conviction. People were ineligible for certain jobs, government positions, employment. And so those were the most significant uh, effects of the war on drugs. But it also had all kinds of other effects, many of which, of course, are felt outside of the United States, where it seems to me the real war on drugs. When you talk about a war on drugs in the United States, you're obviously speaking somewhat metaphorically. It's not a real war in the sense of what's going on now in Ukraine, but in parts of Central and Latin America, there seems to be something that is less more metaphorical, more of a, a real war on drugs. So those effects are certainly not very uh, happy effects either. And uh, among other effects, when people have to resort to black markets to get the substances that they choose to consume, you get crime that moves in. And so there's a whole lot of criminal activity associated with drugs, not so much because of the effects of drugs themselves, but because drug markets were illicit. And the analogy there is with The market surrounding alcohol during the era of prohibition in the United States from 1919 to 1933. And so that's another harmful effect. Uh, Finally, I could go on, but let's mention one more. The substances that were bought on the black market contained ingredients that no one had any idea were there. Well, maybe someone did, but often sellers, buyers had no idea what they were consuming, whether they were adulterants, the potency of what they were consuming. And as a result, a lot of people suffered health effects from drugs that were not due to the drugs themselves so much as to other things that were in the drugs that no one knew about. You know, there, there are a bunch of effects. So, I mean, there are more, but let's stop right there.
0: You know, the term prison state is thrown around a lot how has the drug war contributed to what that term came to mean?
1: Well, at one time, quite a few people involved in the illicit drug trade were sent to prison. That's not so true anymore. and hasn't been true for a while, but there was a time when it was true. Certainly, if you look at the numbers of people in federal prisons, they are often overrepresented uh, in drug trafficking. That's because, of course, The federal government has authority at the borders, and drugs are brought in often from source countries. And so interdiction of drugs is a criminal offense, and those people uh, suffer uh, federal effects, federal prosecution, arrest, incarceration. Uh, States differed quite a bit in how much they enforced their drug laws and resorted to prison to you know, punish drug users, but there was quite a bit of punishment and incarceration on the state level as well. That has receded quite a bit more than I think many people believe. So it's pretty hard for a first-time drug user to go to prison these days, but still, some do, and it's not a trivial figure.
0: How do prisons, which are theoretically supposed to rehabilitate, deal with drug users uh, who are incarcerated?
1: Again, not too many drug users are incarcerated and it is, I think, quite facetious to suppose they're rehabilitated. There are prisons that have old drug treatment programs, but those are not very numerous, not a very high quality. So I think the main dynamic here is that many users of drugs Age out. That is, if you look at the demographics of drug use, it tends to be a young man more than women, a young man's game. And so every succeeding decade, fewer and fewer people consume illicit drugs. They tend to stick with the drugs that are easy to obtain and legal, like alcohol. And so a lot of people age out of drug use pretty quickly, and that's, I think, often what happens whether people are incarcerated or not. So that's, I think, a phenomenon. But to re- to rehabilitate drug users, uh, not an easy thing to do and certainly not something prisons take too seriously, I believe.
0: I'd like to talk to you a bit about the financial elements of drug policy in the United States. Is the way that current drug policy implemented in the United States, is it cost-effective as a government initiative, let's say?
1: Is it cost-effective? Well, that, of course, depends on what its objectives are. I think the stated objectives, in as much as objectives can be found stated anywhere, is to reduce the incidence of drug use. And so how much of a good or a bad is that? I mean, suppose it's true that Decreasing the availability of drugs, increasing their cost, which you would expect to be a function of criminalization. Suppose that really did reduce drug consumption to some extent or another that you could measure. Well, if that is a good thing, and I'm not prepared to concede it is, but many people believe it is. And if it is, then how much of a value do you put on that? And how, uh, how much money is it worth to achieve that objective and there you're going to get reasonable people all over the place disagreeing about that and so whether it's cost effective is something that people who are critical of the war on drugs like myself are very very skeptical of but i think people can still continue to believe without being in some you know uh, land of uh, make believe that the drug policy we've had for several years has been cost effective. I think that's probably false, but it's very hard to know because precise statistics on this are very contentious.
0: You made the analogy a second ago uh, with prohibition of alcohol right, in the United States. Can you describe the similarities that you see? Obviously, they are different to some degree. The times were different, but what similarities do you see?
1: The similarities had to do with taking substances that at one time were legal, making them illegal. And then you found that users who used, who liked those drugs and wanted to continue to consume them were forced to go to black markets and supplies then of those drugs were provided by a black market, by people who were operating outside the law. And when you get substantial black markets like that, you often get criminal activity. That's certainly the lore about alcohol prohibition. And it's uh, no doubt true, to some extent, also true of drug markets in the United States. Drug markets, of course, have changed quite a bit. And I'm now still thinking about illicit drug markets, not marijuana, which has become legal in many states. But think of other illicit substances that people want to consume, uh, the opiates, uh, cocaine, uh, hallucinogens. And so those continue to be obtained largely on black markets. And there was a time when you talked about drug markets and they resembled the kind of markets that you tend to imagine when you think about a market, you think of a farmer's market or someplace where you go, to actually buy the substance you want. And that's what markets used to look like. People knew where to go uh, to buy the drugs they wanted. Now the markets have changed quite a bit. And what's changed them I think is technology, cell phones, people I think are much more likely to use technology to get drugs than to go in a car and to drive to a place to get drugs. But that's uh, uh, the, the way people got the substances that they wanted during the era of prohibition or during the era of drug prohibition. A lot of similarities, a lot of differences. Some of the differences are due to technology. We now have the internet. We now have cell phones in your pocket, and they make acquisition of illicit substances much easier and less risky, I think, and there's less criminal activity associated with that than there was 20 years ago or during the era of alcohol prohibition.
0: What is the impact of the war on drugs on minority communities?
1: Well, it is often said with some justification that though minorities tend to use illicit drugs at roughly the same rate as Whites, they are more likely to be arrested, more likely to be prosecuted, more likely to be punished. And when they are punished, they're more likely to be punished severely. And so, this is, I think, exhibit A in the allegation that the criminal justice system is unfairly stacked against racial minorities, Hispanics and Blacks in particular. We're not talking about Asians. And Indians. We're talking about African Americans and Hispanics primarily. And it is true that enforcement of drug law has often tilted heavily against minorities. Uh, Why that is so is a much more interesting question than I think many people are inclined to believe. I think it's mostly a function of the fact that these days, police are sent to areas where crime is highest. and rather than have police waste their time in Beverly Hills or in suburban parts of the country where crime is low, they are often sent to places where crime is highest. and those obviously are socioeconomically disadvantaged communities, often minority minority communities. And so the people who are, using and selling drugs just come to the attention of the police more readily than white suburban kids who are selling drugs. It's not what I think of as such a racist policy as it is a byproduct of the fact that there's more policing in minority communities. And that's because there's more crime in those communities, not so much because the police are racist. That's an allegation often made and it may be true, but I think the extent to which it is true tends to be exaggerated when people think
0: about drug policy. What is the connection between drug policy and the overwhelmingly high conviction rate, particularly in federal courts? particularly by way of guilty pleas. What is the connection there?
1: Oh, I don't see too many connections. I mean, it's certainly true that almost all criminal cases are resolved through guilty pleas. And so plea bargain, plea bargaining continues to be the coin of the realm in the criminal justice system. I am not aware that there is a higher incidence of guilty pleas in a drug context than in other criminal contexts. That may be true, but it's not, uh, if so, it's not a great difference. And so the phenomenon of plea bargaining, like it or not, affects drug policy and other crimes pretty indifferently, as far as I'm aware.
0: You know, it's been argued that drug prohibition in the way that it's implemented now actually endangers kids more than drug uh, decriminalization. What do you say to that?
1: Yeah, there's a lot to that. I mean, if I were a parent of a 18-year-old and my 18-year-old was otherwise pretty well-behaved, I mean, he's going to school, seems to be getting good grades, is not missing a bunch of classes, maybe, you know, know, somebody who seems pretty well-adjusted for an 18-year-old. And I became aware that my kid was using drugs I would be much more worried about the likelihood that my kid would get arrested and hassled by the police and suffer whatever consequences the police, in their discretion, choose to impose. I'd be much more worried about that. And I would be worried about the health effects of the drugs. Although, of course, individual cases vary a lot. If the kid's using a lot of drugs, well, that may be a different story. But when you look at patterns of drug use among uh, teenagers and young adolescents, I think that the consequences of the drugs are probably less worrisome than the consequences of getting caught. And so that's why I think the criminalization of drugs may be a more worrisome phenomenon than the deleterious health effects of the drugs themselves.
0: How have other countries dealt with drug use and drug criminalization?
1: Well, uh, most countries are uh, signatories to international treaties that require them to be fairly consistent in the way they deal with drugs. But there are some outliers, and uh, Portugal and Uruguay come to mind as the countries that have the most progressive drug policies. And it really is interesting to look at their experience because for a long time, people like me sat and speculated quite a bit and tried to get whatever data we could about how decriminalization would affect society and what the effects of decriminalization would be relative to a place and a time when drug use was largely criminalized. And there was a lot of speculation and a lot of conjecture and guesswork. There are now places where drug use is let's say decriminalized, the real details are complicated, but where people really are not likely to get into real problems with the criminal justice system as a result of drug use. Of course, Oregon is another place here in the United States. And so you can really look at what the effects are. And I might say that despite the fact that I have been on the drug decriminalization bandwagon for maybe 30, 40 years, as I said, I've been on this bandwagon long before it was fashionable. I must admit that the actual on the ground effects of decriminalization are not pretty. If you look at the extent of homelessness and those uh, the connected problems in places like Portland, Oregon and other parts of Oregon, and look at the same phenomenon throughout uh, uh, Portugal it's not as happy a result as I would have hoped. And so I think it should give anyone some pause before he just blithely assumes that the decriminalization project is going to be all gain and no loss. There, are, there is a downside here, and it is something that has an ugly underbelly. And so what you make of that is something about which, again, reasonable minds differ. But America does, you know, California in particular has a real problem with drug addicts who are homeless. A lot of these people are also mentally ill. And to what extent that phenomenon combines or relates to the decriminalization phenomenon? Uh, that's a complicated story, but there's surely some connection.
0: you know. Often in my courses, I discuss supply reduction and demand reduction. What measure is best to focus on if you are to choose one as an expert?
1: Depends what your objective is. If you, uh, you know, you whether your uh, what your methods are, uh, I don't know which of the two metrics is the better one. I I mean, you can certainly try to reduce demand. You can try to reduce supply. If you reduce supply without reducing demand, then just plain laws of economics indicate uh, the effects you're going to get. So how you decide which to pursue is something again, about re- which reasonable minds differ. I think most of the objectives really have gone to, supply reduction because it's very really it's really hard i think to actually make headway and convince people who are curious or who want to try drugs very hard in a free society like ours to tamp down their demand not impossible but it's not really easy so the much uh the 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 easier lower hanging fruit i guess is to try interdiction at borders and to try to do something about supply. Neither has worked very well, but I would think those are your two options and most policy officials try to pursue both.
0: Sure, Uh, I'd like to talk to you about taxation, right? When many folks talk about decriminalization, the kind of discussion often goes to taxation, right? The degree to which the financial benefits that the government can reap from decriminalization are weighed against the burden to society, the harm to society. Uh, is that a useful analysis to engage in?
1: Well, I mean, everyone would like to see tax revenues go up without taxing individuals. I mean, if you could get more money from the illicit drug market to government and thereby not have to increase uh, you know, uh, income tax, property tax, of other law-abiding citizens that surely would be a good thing rather than have obscene profits flow to drug kingpins in foreign lands it would be good if a lot of that money could go to our own government to do uh the good things hopefully that our government chooses that surely is a good thing if you look at promises about how decriminalization would uh, of marijuana in particular where it's been tried now throughout roughly half of the country And a lot of people projected there would be real tax savings. And the tax savings have been worthwhile, maybe not as great as the decriminalization people hoped, but there are some tax advantages to decriminalization. And that surely is a good thing. That's one of the real advantages of decriminalization. And it was one way to sell decriminalization to people who didn't really care much about drugs. They didn't want to consume drugs. But they did want to save money. And if you can convince people that a policy is a money saver, well, that's something that's that's a pretty favorable thing to say in its behalf. So uh, to some extent, that's been true. Again, maybe not quite to the extent that drug reformers would have hoped.
0: What are the dangers of black markets?
1: Well, black markets are often violent, especially in the United States, when people, when customers are unhappy about what they bought, or when sellers are unhappy with the customer's uh, inability to pay, they can't resort to the same kinds of legal strategies that are used in commercial disputes. Generally, you can't go to court, you can't sue. And so you've got to somehow figure out a way to uh, make sellers uh, do what they have allegedly promised to do or when buyers shortchange or sell some product that customers are unhappy with they have little recourse but to do something outside the law and that's one of the reasons you get violence in these markets.
0: Will marijuana ever be federally legalized?
1: It's very difficult to make confident predictions about the future of drug policy, I try to stay away from that. Certainly, if you look at the trend over the last five, 10, 20 years, states have increasingly relaxed their prohibition policies on marijuana. And so if you extrapolate that, and they haven't retreated from that, the states that have gotten on board haven't backed off. So the trend has unmistakably been toward decriminalization legalization of marijuana and if you think more and more states are going to fall into that it's probably a matter of time before the federal government does so as well but i shy away from making these kind of predictions i frankly don't expect to live to see it but it's really hard to know about the political direction of this country right now and so very hard to know where we're headed and what the different outcomes democrat republican what those different outcomes will have to say about drug policy. I mean, now you have, you know, President Biden, certainly a very different political character from Donald Trump, but Biden doesn't seem to have any real interest in decriminalizing marijuana. Uh, frankly, neither did Obama on the uh, federal level. Uh, certainly Donald Trump didn't. And so it's hard to think of a prominent federal you know, a politician who is powerful and is really on board with changing federal marijuana policy. There's some movement in that direction, but there are many more uh, apparently important things going on. Uh, Some things, uh, some are, you know, a lot of paralysis right now. So not much is happening on that front. Whether it's going to happen at all, again, who knows? Probably, but I wouldn't count on it.
0: Where do you see American drug policy in the next 10, 20 years?
1: Again, you know, if you think about drug policy and you take a long enough time frame, 100 years, 150 years, there have been pendulums. And so when you have a trend, it's very tempting to think that the trend that you have seen over the last year, five years, 10 years, that that trend will continue and you extrapolate into the future. But sometimes trends have a way of reversing themselves. And I can think of a few things that could very well happen that would make for a reversal in the liberalization of marijuana policy. There are so many edibles right now. All you would need is an epidemic of children getting their hands on uh, edible marijuana and thinking it's candy, consuming a lot of it, and having really serious health effects, dying. And if you had a lot of that, I think it might change public opinion pretty quickly because there's nothing that changes opinion more quickly than harm to children. And that's always been a concern of the people who were skeptical about liberalization of drug policy. So something like that could happen that would really change the current direction, whether it'll happen or not. Again, I don't have a crystal ball. And I'm always amused when people claim to be very confident, they know where we're headed, because I certainly don't make those predictions.
0: Professor, I want to thank you for your time and your help in dealing with these complex issues. Very much appreciated.
1: Well, this has been a whole lot of fun. I hope it was uh, useful for you as well. And thanks again. And uh, best wishes going forward.